Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. The opera form, which can be considered a synthesis of music and literature, arose in cosmopolitan cities such as Milan, Vienna, Paris, Florence, and Dresden, all places where wealthy nobles and merchants who had money could commission operas to be performed. Also consequently, all places where wine drinking was a major part of culture and places where wine-growing regions abounded nearby. The topic of wine can be found in many operas, and throughout the genre, you'll find scenes in pubs or parties where the opera characters are imbibing and often singing about wine and its effects. Mozart incorporated wine into his operas. In Don Giovanni, the main character, Don Giovanni, sings a song about planning a party in which everyone will get hot-headed with wine, which will then aid the success of his flirtatious advances with women at the party. But wine wasn't always a tool that worked in the favor of the main characters. In Johann Strauss Jr.'s 1874 production of the Flittermouse opera, Champagne is blamed for all the trouble. After the main character, Eisenstein, gets into heaps of trouble with his wife, he sings a song and some of the lyrics translate to, Champagne was to blame for all we have endured today. And one of the most well-known opera songs of all time is the drinking song in Verdi's La Traviata. The song, entitled Let's Drink from the Joyful Chalices, is sung at a late-night party when Alfredo is attempting to woo Violetta. Libiamo, let's drink from the joyous chalices since the beautifulness is blossoming. Let's drink. Love among the chalices will make our kisses warmer. Violetta joins him in song, and they commence a brief relationship before things begin to unravel. Later in his life, Verdi writes several more wine-infused scenes in Falstaff, his operatic adaptation of some of Shakespeare's writings. At the end of the second act, Falstaff is thrown into a river in a laundry basket, and later when he climbs out, he warms his spirits and his clothes with hot wine at a tavern. These are just a few of many examples of wine appearing in the opera genre, but they demonstrate the many subtle ways that wine as culture can emerge repeatedly with each performance around the world and continue to influence us today. 
In opera, wine is usually used as a dramatic catalyst, a product that will have an effect on the scene and change the circumstances in some way. For Don Giovanni, things change for the better. For Eisenstein, his drunken revelries get him in big trouble with his wife. And for Alfredo, the drinking song helps him to win the love of Violetta. Because of wine's known ability to alter a person's state, it becomes a useful, dramatic tool in the world of opera. You might not believe that Alfredo can go to one party and win over Violetta in such a short period of time, but add wine and suddenly it seems more plausible. You might not believe that Falstaff, after climbing out of a river, would go straight to a pub instead of a private room to dry off. But when he orders a hot wine to warm up, it suddenly makes sense and it's kind of funny. Wine turns up again and again in opera and often is a very useful mechanism to move the plot forward. Perhaps all this wine reinforcement in opera had something to do with one sommelier in particular, who moved from an opera singing career over to the wine business. Keep listening to learn more. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at OffsetPartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an s.com offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand David Keck of Camarata in Houston on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. So you're in Houston, but originally you're from uh, a different whole other part of the country. Yeah, I grew up in Vermont. I was born in Massachusetts in Worcester, Mass. Don't always admit that. A lovely town for those in there. but uh, It's really pronounced Worcester. Worcester, 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 <laughs> Mass. Um, and then my How many Dunkin' Donuts when you were a kid? A lot of Dunkin' Donuts. Well, not. And then we moved to Vermont when I was about five and, you know, chains sort of disappear and uh my neighbor made donuts with venison fat which was awesome and highly recommended if you're in west newbury vermont but i don't think they exist elsewhere and how long were you in vermont lived in vermont through high school and then left to go to college in new york and then i go back whenever i can but uh lived in the city for i guess the 10 years following more or less and what were your parents up to? Parents are both musicians. So professionally, uh, my mother's a violinist. My father's a tubist. And uh, they, when I was born, we'd sort of traveled somewhat itinerantly as that career works. And then moved to New Hampshire. My grandfather was in poor health. And then when he um, passed away, we, well, my folks decided that they wanted to raise children in a beautiful rural environment. So they went into teaching, which they are both wonderful at. And uh, so we, I lived there in a town of 400 people. 
looking back, how much of Vermont's still in you? I, I think a lot. I think, you, you know, the old adage, you can take the, uh, the Vermonter out of Vermont, but you can't take the Vermont out of the Vermonter. It's a beautiful state. It's extremely pastoral still. It's still not commercialized in many respects. They don't allow billboards. There's a very real, you know, the whole farm to table movement started and everybody was super excited about that. And in Vermont, it was kind of like, well, that's where the food comes from. So what else am I supposed to do? And uh, and so I think there's definitely a, a very real appreciation of small business and um, and a rural lifestyle. And um, and now being in the wine business, it's all about dealing with people who, when you, I think, are doing it right, it's about farming. And so, you know, my nearest neighbors were both dairy farmers. And as a young kid, I mean, what was David Keck like? <laughs> I I spoke my mind a lot, which I still do, actually. So that was a challenge. But I mean, you can get in less trouble when you're on a dirt road off a dirt road. So I rode my bike around a lot with my buddy, Kurt, and that was life. But um, then I went into music early on. So I was starting to, I went into opera when I was about 12 years old. I decided I wanted to be an opera singer. So I was performing in musical theater, opera, kind of all sorts of different uh, venues for singing and music pretty much from then on. And where'd that take you? Sang all through high school, ended up going to college for English and comparative literature, but then sort of all the while studying languages with the intention of going into opera as the career. So then uh, went to Juilliard after uh, my undergrad at Columbia there and, um, and continued performing and sang professionally for a bit. And then came to Houston, actually, to study at Rice with a wonderful teacher there, Stephen King. And um, in the process of being in Houston and meeting a beautiful woman who is now my wife. And uh, Well and, played, sir. Yeah, yeah, I got to get that in. <laughs> um, I decided I wanted a slightly different lifestyle than the itinerant run around and sing. Singing still is, I mean, you sing for six weeks or a month, a couple months somewhere. And then you go to your next gig. Nobody wants to, we don't, in certainly not in the States, but also sort of internationally, people are, opera singers are not employed regionally in the same way, except maybe Germany. So I decided uh, I'd see what it felt like to live in one place for a bit. And uh, that's kind of when I made the full shift into wine. But what was the New York chapter like? I mean, Juilliard and living in New York, how was that? Yeah, I love New York. I actually, I, I had a blast. So Upper West Side for a while and then studying at Lincoln Center and lived in Queens for the last few years that I was there, which I loved living in Astoria. But, you know, it's a great, it's a, it's a brilliant city and it's a great place to just, it's a great place to study. It's a great place to learn about whatever you want to learn because they're, you know, just culturally and, uh, you know, musically and everything else, you can kind of find people who are doing great things, whatever your field is. And that's what I loved about New York is the concentration. It's a little intense and I always needed to like do the pressure release valve on a pretty regular basis. Growing up in a town of 400 people, then being in a city that I guess during the day it's 12 million still-ish. Um, I needed to like every six months or a year, it'd be like, I need a few weeks out of here. And, um, and finally I was pretty happy to sort of explore a different lifestyle. But I still love it. I love to visit. And uh, it's an easier place to live, though, than it is to visit. Having a place that is yours to sort of take your shoes off and not feel like you're imposing on somebody is kind of what makes it easy to deal with New York. And I think also like knowing that spot that serves good wings or like, you yeah, know, yeah, knowing the absolutely. places because there's so many places and some of them suck. Yeah, I mean? absolutely. And um, and I don't have quite the same network. I still have a lot of friends who live there. But, you know, when you live there, you, it's a constant exploration. And now it's like, where do I go? <laughs> but it's funny because the wine thing didn't really take off for you in New York. No, I mean, I really started to love wine and started to 
sort of appreciated in a different way when I lived there. I didn't realize how good I had it in New York until I left. And, um, and I didn't really pursue it as a career until I was in Houston. Uh, while I was in New York, I was bartending and working in restaurants, but more just sort of in between gigs. Mostly focused on the music. Yeah, absolutely. So you get to Houston and what happens? Houston, when I moved there, I started working sort of while I was in school uh, at a wine bar called Cova, which no longer sadly exists. But um, but it was great, uh, terrific wine selection. And I was pretty much there three, four nights a week while I was in school and started to really sort of hone my personal sensibility about wine. It was a fun list. We did a lot of retail stuff. We did a lot of tastings and education. And I just kind of started to develop a little bit of sort of the passion that would continue on and make it a viable career choice. One of the things I loved about music was, and still love about music, is the sort of multidimensional aspect. You can study history, you can study, you know, culture, language, the music itself. I mean, there are so many elements sort of packed in and wine, the more I got to, I, I guess, became more familiar with small production and with all of the various elements. I realized it's about geology and history and culture and all the things we know go into wine. And so that was where I was like, okay, this I, this has enough things to sort of satisfy my own personal version of ADD, right? That I need to constantly be moving and learning new things. So when I get tired of studying geology, I can go and study, you know, history or chemistry or, you know, what's going on in organic chemistry here. At Covo, what happens? Like what, what goes on for your career there? Yeah, so I there it was kind of more about, I mean, it was making money while I was singing and that was still pretty much the career choice, but it was all about sort of becoming familiar with some of the smaller productions, some of the portfolios, really just starting to learn the the nuts and bolts of who what the wines are, where they're from, who makes them, all that sort of jazz, but not really in a wine buying capacity, not a sommelier in the sort of more traditional sense, really just bartending. And, um, and it was really after I decided after I graduated, got my master's degree, I said, you know, uh, I'm going to try the wine thing out and went to be a seller rat for a really terrific sommelier in town. And that was where I started to learn. Oh, right. You know, and basically I just told him I was waiting tables and said, I want to count bottles for you. And I want to hang out while you're doing inventory, just sort of, uh, David's pro bono, my stodging with the, the Psalm there, which I think actually is I, it's something I still encourage everyone to do. And the, the folks who work with me now, it's constantly like, if you want to learn this, it's all about doing inventory and looking at labels and looking at bottles because they will come back and you'll have the visual memory. And, uh, and that's the job half of the time is really making sure your, your stuff is right. The business is right. So, so that was when I started really to understand the business aspect and counting bottles, touching labels, starting to see how ordering happened, all that sort of jazz. And then simultaneously, the wine buying position at Cova actually became available. And, um, and so I went back to the place where I'd kind of begun cultivating that knowledge. And um, I sat my level one with the quartermaster sommeliers, which kind of blew my mind a little bit. You know, you get Guy Stout and Doug Frost uh, teaching a class. It's, uh, it's an intense class and wildly new for me and wonderful. And then there I was in a wine buying position for which I was horribly unqualified and uh, learning by the seat of my pants, but also building some wonderful relationships with great people. Like looking 
in the music sense of like at the sheet music, like got to work right. through the music, got to work through those chords, got to work through right. the, the pieces to make the performance okay. Like got to put hands on bottles, got to do inventory, gotta, Absolutely, got to get the building blocks in. Absolutely. And I think it's really funny because it's also for those outside of this industry and also outside of the music industry. Oh, it's great. You get to sing opera. You go and you just sing and you make beautiful music and it's wonderful and everybody loves it. And uh, most of what you do as an opera singer is sit and translate scores by yourself in a, you know, in a room and uh, with a piano and uh, very little company and you translate and clunk out notes and make sure that you are doing the job properly. And, um, you know, so some way it's very much, oh, you get to open these wonderful bottles and be on the floor and decant and open sparkling wine and, you know, interact with guests. And most of what we do is count bottles and make sure that our inventory is right and make sure that and study and stare at maps by ourselves and look at, you know, all the crews of Beaujolais and make sure we actually know what we're talking about when we go to those guests. And um, I think there's definitely a, a good comparison between the two there. So when you make the move and you say, hey, man, I just want to hang out pro bono and help. Is that because you realize it's a competitive industry, kind of like music can be a competitive industry and you really got to start at the intern level and get in there. So many people want it. Or is it more just like there's no other opportunities here in Houston. I got to latch on to the one that's there and run with it. No, I think for me, it was really just knowing that he was good, knowing that position didn't really exist for that restaurant. And I think in music and to draw the comparison again between the two fields, you go where the people are that are worth studying with. And so in wine, I just asked when I was like, I think I'm going to do this. Who's the guy I should go count bottles with? You know, who's the best guy to learn wine with? And I went and got a server position and bothered Dave until he'd let me count bottles with him. And I think it works the same way. You know, in music, you find the teacher. You find the person that is going to teach you the things you need to know. And if they have a job, great. If they don't, you work for free. <laughs> and, and that's how you get better. But was there some soul-searching moments there in the transition from music to wine? Were there some oh, yeah. moments where you're like, I don't know. I mean, what, There's still stuff. <laughs> Every day. I mean, it's uh, they're both really intense. And you you can't sort of kind of be an opera singer. And you can't like, yeah, I kind of am a sommelier on the side a little bit. They're both all-consuming jobs. They take up a tremendous amount of your life and time to study and to do the job properly. And so there's always that moment of like, hey, am I as I pour over must weight levels and really wonder, is this, am I, yeah. but, um, but then you have great confirmation moments in both careers. And I think absolutely, I love the job that I do. And there, I mean, to this day, there are moments when I, you know, bust out and sing a little bit. And there are moments when I'm pouring wine for my friends who are opera singers still and have a great moment where they are learning about wine. And I think there's a lot of, yeah, absolutely. I think we all, when you make a career change, there's always a moment of, is this the right move? But I'm very happy with what I do. You seem like the kind of guy who, like, when you get in it, you get in it to win it. Like, you really want to break off big pieces. Yeah, you know yeah, what yeah I absolutely. Mean? And where is that coming from? What was formative that said, like, yeah, I think I want to be at the top level here. Like, I'm not just in this because I'm chilling. I like wine. Well, I came from a career where that's the only perspective you can have. I mean, you can't, like, I'm going to kind of sing opera a little bit and on the side, and hopefully it's going to work out. Like, you have to... You're, it is, in, to some extent, it has an, an element of egotism, but it also, like, you can't sing opera without an all, some knowledge of self-worth. And I think you can't go to a table of scary-looking oil barons and propose to them a $10,000 bottle or a $5,000 bottle without the confidence and self-sort of knowledge, again, that knowledge of self-worth that you can do the job and you can talk about it lucidly. And so I think that this job attracts people with a competitive spirit as well. 
you also can't sort of climb these ranks of the quartermaster sommeliers, which we, a lot of us are in that program and aspire to someday be a master sommelier. That doesn't happen without some sort of weird masochistic competitive drive. And so I think that is always to some extent existed. And, um, and I tend to kind of jump in with both feet just personally, that's kind of my style. But then I also think that there's an element of this industry that is, I mean, I, I love Anthony Bourdain's comment that we all join the service industry to be pirates. And I think there's certainly an element of like, it's outside of the normal spectrum. And as a result, it is a very malleable field. What we do in restaurants, what we do in bars, what we do in wine alone is flexible. And as a result, the industry is very open to shift and change and and grow in wonderful ways or less wonderful ways, depending on how that works. But that's a great challenge, I think. And I think a lot of sommeliers and uh, people who are in the restaurant business are in it to try and like change people's perspectives, change the way the world of wine is seen, the way sommeliers are seen in a, in a positive way for the most part. And I think that's cool and that's exciting. And that is a huge project. A lot of times when I talk to the more successful Texas sommeliers, there does seem to be an evangelistic viewpoint like we gotta <laughs> save people like yeah, especially yeah. in these towns where i think the common scenario is this is a town that i moved to these people like beef and big red wine and mm -hmm. i wanted to introduce them to the truth a yeah, little bit yeah, yeah. you know the light <laughs> you know and sometimes i'm like wow that sounds like uh something yeah. else you know like yeah. almost like the evangelistic spirit you know yeah i think absolutely and we have the benefit of being in front of people physically and able to talk about those elements personally, but I think it's not, it's not unique exclusively to this industry. I think anywhere where you're talking about what is really to some extent the top 1% of any given thing, whether it be art, architecture, literature, when you talk to the group of folks who are working at it every day as hard as they possibly can and hopefully bringing to bear some relatively intense intellectual strength. And I can certainly say that for my colleagues, they're certainly doing that. You are going to have an ev evangelistic element to it because you're trying to talk to the other 99% of folks. And I'm not saying this doesn't have to do with the intelligence. It has to do with who, what do we study and how do we approach it? This is what I spend my life doing. I'm not going to tell a doctor how to be a doctor, but if I'm going to talk to him about how he performs surgery, I'm going to trust that that's what he is dedicated to. And his job is to bring up his entire industry and um, and help people get better. My job is to, to some extent, help disseminate some of the information that I spend my life trying to absorb and consume. And in the sort of hope and I guess somewhat idealistic viewpoint that it will help. And I realize that's a somewhat a tangential answer, but I think that Houston, you know, has for long been seen as the cabin a slab city and so there in the wine business the job is to to some extent just expand people's horizons a little bit and i don't think the job of the sommelier is to confuse startle or make your guests cranky our job is to provide them with delicious beverages but i think that it is also our job to have the knowledge to provide them with delicious beverages that are made by people that are produced in a respectful and uh, somewhat conscientious way. And that that's our job. 
And we spend our lives studying things to make that a possibility. And so when you move to, you know, I moved to a town like Houston, which I think is, you know, we're catching up to some of the major cities in the world that already have a very built-in wine culture. Our job is to try and help everybody move forward a little bit in that viewpoint. Sometimes I think that Houston looks at other cities and says like, I don't know if we're there yet, you know, San Francisco, New York. But then at the same time, I feel like Houston's sitting on a big pile of money. Like it seems like people are doing good. Absolutely. Well, like have money to spend on wine. And I, I may get in trouble for bringing this up, but like, I think the slogans that the city comes up with are inherently, there is a built in inferiority complex. And I think it's crazy. Because Houston it is an amazing city, but like Houston, it's worth it was big for a while. And then the, I don't know if it's possible to say four letters, but fuck you, Houston's awesome is appearing on all these t-shirts. And I'm like, that is, you are coming from a place of inferiority with all of those statements. Like what needs to be said is come see what's going on in Houston because it's amazing. And right now we have a tremendous influx of young professionals. Houston's growing rapidly. We've already got a tremendous amount of money. And now what we've got is a, a slightly younger clientele that are eager for new things. And so the opportunity is there. The clientele is there. Now it's up to us to just kind of make it all happen, I think. So what did you see in that first wine buying position? You you know, you're designing lists that people are using, customers are using. Right. What was Houston like at that time and what did you discover? What I discovered then and I've discovered and has been reaffirmed sort of since then is that people actually really are excited to try new things provided you don't act like an asshole about it. It's not that what you drink normally is bad. It's that this is also rad and I think it's delicious and you should try it. And I found immediately because I started out with a really dorky sensibility because I think we a lot of us do. You start to absorb information and you learn about the Jura. That one's for James Tidwell. Uh, you learn about the Jura and Savoie. You learn about geeky little DOCs in Italy and you think these are the wines that people need to drink, whether or not they are necessarily delicious. And frequently they are, but that's the conversation then is not, you should drink this because I read about it and I think it's cool. You should drink this because it is delicious. It's very similar to what you drink on a normal basis and I think you're going to enjoy it and it's going to maybe introduce you to something new that you can then enjoy in the future. And I found, you know, in my first buying position that I bought some stuff that didn't sell, you know, and I I won't name names necessarily, but like there are wines that are going to sit on the shelf. Listen, a $50 wholesale bottle from Italy is a tough sell unless you've got a lot of knowledge and a lot of people that are in there that really have the means and the interest in that to uh, drop that kind of money on a bottle. And I think the clientele certainly exists. It's always about what I learned early on. It's about my education and how can I get better at explaining what I'm buying for these folks. And I'm sure, you know, there are wines that I bought in that first year that I will never buy again, not because they're not good, but because I will never be able to sell them because that's just whatever that they are what they are. But it must be interesting to be one of a, a handful of sommeliers and maybe a one of a handful of people in a city who tastes thousands of wines mm-hmm. on the regular. And I think it must depend on some level of self-confidence to be like, no, I know this is nowhere on any list, but I think it's really good. Sure. And it, it kind of comes back to your self-worth comment before. Right. Yeah. I mean, you have to have that to some extent, a trust in your own palate. And, and then you try it, you know, <laughs> like I thankfully at Camarada have the, the flexibility and I appreciate the owners, you know, 
I guess, uh, willingness to let me buy what I think will sell. And, um, and then it's on me to sell it and make the bar money, which is, I think all of us in this industry, we, it's something not to be forgotten that our job is to sell wine. It's not to buy cool stuff. And, um, a, a mentor of mine actually in distribution, Mark Mattingly, who has worked with Republic for a very, very long time came in and, uh, he was at the bar when I got the job and, uh, I met him at his car as he was leaving. Cause I was terrified. And I was like, Hey Mark, I, uh, I just got this job. I'm a little nervous. I have never bought wine. And he goes, David, it's not hard to buy wine. Any idiot can buy wine. It's how you sell it that's difficult. And uh, and that has stayed with me since then. And I think it's probably very much the truth of our job. So what was the progression to Camarata where you are now? Right. So um, I was with Kova for a year and then went into distribution. And I a job became available with a terrific portfolio that I was excited to sell and a great route. And um, at that point, it was the right time to leave Kova and try something new. And so I went into distribution for a year. It was not maybe my favorite element of this job. I have tremendous respect for those who are in it. It is hard. It is a lot of work and a lot of long hours. And I busted my ass doing it. And, um, and I think I did it decently well and learned a tremendous amount about how that part of the business works, which has, I think, helped me in my buying since then. But um, after that, I decided I wanted to be back in restaurants and I went and applied at that point. Uchi Restaurant Group was opening their Houston location and they didn't at that point have a beverage director. So I wrote a, uh, I wrote my job description and walked in and said, I think you need this and I'd like to do that for you. And they said, great, we're a work your way up from the bottom company. So you're going to be a server, but we want you to sort of observe closely the way we do wine education, observe all of this. And then, you know, a few months later, I started taking over training. A few months later, I started buying for that store. And then um, within about six months, I was doing all three locations and buying for that group and also bartending and doing all sorts of stuff, doing all the training, and uh, which was an amazing experience to start buying for a different market because I was buying for the Austin locations as well, buying for a group of restaurants, which was totally new. And, um, you know, how do you, how do you structure all of that dealing with suppliers and, uh, and supply and demand and all that sort of jazz and what sells. But you'd seen the distribution side. And that was fantastic. And already having some of those connections and nobody really goes away in this business. They may change roles, but it's amazing that, you know, even since when I started with Kova, it was great to be able to still have that Rolodex of, oh, okay, you're not with them, you're with them, but great. We can still do business because you're awesome. And, uh, which is a great reminder to everyone, I think, that uh, don't burn bridges because they you will come back. They it will come back around um, unless the bridge needs to be burned or you don't want to ever see them again. <laughs> but then so I was with Uchi for a couple of years and uh, learned a tremendous amount, met some great people. And they, they it's a neat group of restaurants and, and probably um, some pairing challenges. Oh, tremendous. I mean, that food is one of the it's one of the hardest jobs I've had for pairing because I mean, and this is an argument I make all the time with my chef friends. It's like, guys, I understand how cool these dishes are and how you're trying to make complete dishes. But there's a reason that food has existed the way it has for so long without all this acid and pickled crap and things that I can't pair at all. And it's because somebody's going to drink wine with it and the wine is going to taste like garbage. So, um, so that was a constant discussion. But the chefs there are awesome as far as like, okay, we're going to do some pairings. What works and how does it work? And I think I learned really there, but it's always been part of my philosophy that I think we all could collaborate more and better as far as sommeliers and chefs. I think that conversation is somewhat still, I think, uh, paleolithic. I mean, I really think that like we are nowhere near where we could be 
with with pairing conversations really and how do we how do we change the guest experience with a collaboration back of house front of house especially guest experience because coming from an environment where people are used to having big protein and big yeah, yeah. bread absolutely you're kind of on the back foot being like oh well i gotta pair with fermented and high acid so i was hoping you'd try this gruner absolutely no and then the the world of sake which is amazing and diverse and fun and um and then you know ciders and beer and uh it was a blast working the bar just because i would probably open too many bottles for the guests who are sitting right in front there because i think you know you've got the concept of omakase in a sushi restaurant like bring me whatever you want and we had guests who were very willing to do that so it's great it's a it's a blast to be able to walk somebody through a menu that's 10 courses long and do 10 you know two ounce pours or something and uh really sort of see how that changes the food and changes the guest experience and uh yeah it was it was a blast and i i miss that being where i am now to some extent it's a it's a cool job. What were some of the other challenges you encountered while you were there? You know, I think always moving into a position of beverage director as opposed to being in one location has a wealth of challenges that we all, you know, everybody who is has that competitive and driving nature at some point finds themselves climbing that ladder and ends up in a position where it's like, okay, I can't see everyone. I can't talk to everyone. And I'm putting... I think communication in restaurants, as we all know, that's the one of the hardest things. And so then communication with three restaurants where you've got how many servers slash other people who need to know the wine list slash ordering wine. Like it taught me some really interesting lessons with regard to communication. How do you disseminate information to a huge staff and get them and energy, which I think is the one of the biggest things that we need to work on in the beverage industry is how do we get our staffs excited? Because the only way you're going to sell that weird ass wine from fill in the blank country is if we get our staff excited about it, because you can't touch every table. It's just not impossible. And moving into a beverage direction position, you really can't touch every table. You're lucky if you can be on the floor at a, on any given night. So I learned a lot about how to get the troops worked up from afar sometimes and also how to do it when I'm in town or when I when I was there. Also how to communicate with suppliers and wineries and look at supply on a, a large scale. That restaurant's very busy in all their locations. And um, I found that one of the most interesting and exciting elements is that you can talk when you're looking at three restaurants that are super busy, you're by the glass, Chardonnay, Pinot Grigio, fill in the blank variety that people are going to order a lot of, you can take an entire winery's annual supply and dramatically change their life and maybe hopefully for the better. And I think that's a serious responsibility for those who buy in quantity to look at how, if I'm going to support the little guys, how do I support the little guys? And how do we have that conversation so that it provides them a totally different opportunity and provides our guests a wine that they might never see that this might be the only place they can actually have that wine rather than just, and you know, I, obviously big production wine to some extent makes the world go round and I'm not going to jump on that bandwagon entirely as far as small production. But I think that when you're in a place that does some volume, it's pretty cool to talk to the little guys too and see what you can do. To be able to also probably differentiate yourself from all absolutely. the other restaurants. In town. No, absolutely. And uh, it's the easiest thing in the world to buy a wine that will never go out of stock. It requires a lot more work to buy a wine that will disappear in two months or a month and you need to replace it and reprint your menus and convince management and upper uh, echelons of management that that's a good idea, that it's worth that expense for the guest experience. 
So what was the next step for you? So then basically I uh, enjoyed my time there with a big company. The challenge at some point becomes like total freedom to do whatever you want, um, which maybe nobody should have entirely. But to some extent with a wine list, it's fun to have that freedom. And I'd begun the conversation with Paul Petronella, who runs one of the most successful uh, neighborhood restaurants. I think it's safe to call it a neighborhood restaurant, though I think it's more than that in Houston called Paulie's. Been there for 17 years. Paul took it over from his parents and um, really a wonderful establishment. And adjoining it was an empty 1,500 square foot place with concrete floors and brick walls and gorgeous and basically just needed a bar in there. And our conversation essentially was, you know, hey, Paul, what do you uh, what do you want on the wine list or how do you see this program? And him saying, well, that's your job. Just make sure it doesn't go under, you know, make sure it's a successful uh, operation. And that was a pretty awesome opportunity than one that at that point I thought Houston was ready for as far as having a place that was kind of trying to push the bill at least. And also I was starting to do a lot more personal work and education and doing a lot of teaching through Uchi, which I enjoy a great deal. And so I thought I, I thought I saw an opportunity there to create a place for people to come and study and learn about wine and learn how to progress in this industry and not do what I did, which was take a buying position with very little help and sort of learn it as I went along, which I think is what a lot of us do. So, um, you in a sense wanted to help the younger you, like you wanted to reach back and be like, you know, people like me who are experiencing this problem, it could be easier for them. Fred Dame and the folks in the court, I think are the first ones to talk about paying it forward. And it's something I subscribe to wholeheartedly. I think there's that. And I think selfishly, there's also the element of being in a market. And we were talking about Houston that has been overlooked to some extent by a lot of the supply and import side. We have some amazing wines. We always are looking at New York and San Francisco and saying, uh, hey guys, what about us? Because we have one of the most thriving wine markets in the country, and yet a lot of the great wine just hits the coast and stops. And so, again, this this is the selfish aspect that if more people are buying more wines from the smaller distributors, suppliers, importers, again, not totally not trying to get on that soapbox entirely, but it's really hard to get any allocation of cocherie if nobody's buying the buy the glass stuff, right? So you've got to have that conversation and there need to be more people that are doing that. And the only way we're going to have a community of wine buyers who are buying those fun, geeky wines and able to sell them and get some movement on them is if there's more education. And so it became also that selfish pursuit of having more people in town buying fun things, helping our clientele as well grow and change and then and then you develop a culture that is, and I, I kind of hate using that word, but it's true to some extent, developing a culture of wine knowledge that moves forward in a really cool way, not just with the sommeliers, but also with our guests who then have an expectation that the wines are going to challenge them. Like the more sommeliers who have brought them interesting wines, the more they're likely to trust the sommelier Absolutely. and think of it as a normal thing to do. Absolutely. And then they... and. By creating that expectation, you also, to some extent, are encouraging those who might be more reticent to change and develop and grow and study and work harder, I would argue, it encourages them to do so because they have guests coming in with higher expectations. And that helps everyone. So you wanted to do a wine bar for consumers, but you also wanted to do a wine bar for the wine industry. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I am very, it's a very humbling thing to open a wine bar that your colleagues want to come and visit and drink in. And that has been one of my greatest, I guess, senses of accomplishment is that wine people like to drink there. And so do bartenders and, you know, chefs and, and that 
you know, when the industry comes to your place, it is a, an extremely humbling and wonderful thing. And so I'm very proud of that fact. But yeah, I, I think it's also been this sort of center of education to some extent. And or I like to think that and, you know, whether that's true or not, I'd have to ask my, you know, the folks who come and drink there and study there. But that was the goal. And at the same time, you set up an association for sommiers and people right. interested in moving into the sommier business. Yeah, absolutely. So essentially, while it, all of the conversations were starting to make a lot of sense just before we opened Camarada, in that I was talking with a lot of my colleagues in Houston, Ben Roberts, who was at Masrafs at that time, now with RNDC, Stephen McDonald, who's at Papa's, Bill Elsie had moved there from Austin, you know, Justin Van, who was there and does amazing work and sort of this conversation about how there wasn't really um, a place where people could gather and talk about wine. And and I also had the conversation a lot with distributors because all of these wonderful wine professionals, winemakers, importers, suppliers come to the market and then they sit in a car all day. They drive around, see six accounts for 15, 20 minutes tops the wine buyer there asks five questions, they taste the wines, great, we're going to buy them, we're not going to buy them, and then they go on their merry way. Why don't we have a place where, A, sommeliers can get together and talk about the dorky shit that we like to talk about, but also we can get wonderful wine professionals in front of that group to talk for an hour and a half, taste 12 wines, and really dive into soil types in Ribera Sacra and like the really dorky shit that we want to talk about, but there's no venue when you're trying to taste wines and you've got a busy day and inventory needs to be finished. It's at 10 o'clock on Wednesday mornings. And so 1030, it's a great time. Nothing happens at 1030 Wednesday mornings in the restaurant. So you get in a person from out of town, maybe they're a winemaker, maybe there's someone traveling through with some extra knowledge that the local community could benefit from. And instead of having them drive 15, 20 minutes, half hour in between restaurants to see each person for 15, 20 minutes, you'd rather have them in one spot talking for an hour and a half and the sommiers traveling to them so that everyone can be there for an hour and a half and hear that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that there, obviously there are, benef there are pros and cons to both of those situations. Having the undivided attention of a winemaker for a few minutes is pretty awesome. And especially if they're friends or colleagues or whatever, and you want to reestablish that connection and talk about some deals and talk about pricing and all that sort of jazz, that can really only happen on a one-on-one -on -one basis. And I understand that. And we are pretty rigid about people not bringing pricing to these conversations. It's not, it's exclusively about education. So from a sales perspective, there might be, I mean, there is a little bit of a downside. I think from an education perspective, the upside is huge. And, and then I think the sales actually happen. And I think that anyone who's been in this business long enough knows, okay, well, I mean, I know how to find the wines. If this guy's here to sell his wine or her wine, it's not because it's not in the market, right? They're not trying to get it brought in, although we've done some of that as well. Um, they're really there to do the educational aspect. And as a result, I'll probably support the wines. And I know how to find them. You know, the distribution situation is not bad. So, And what does that distribution system look like in Houston? Yeah, I mean, it is shifting constantly. And I think, again, as the market changes, and it has very much over the past five years, distribution is to some extent, and I, I say this with all due respect to my colleagues who are in distribution, I think it's struggling to keep up. And there are a lot of changes, uh, mostly for the positive. Some of them are not always positive at the outset, but I think they're all moving in the right direction with the right philosophy. Got sort of the the big houses, RNDC, Glazers that, are, uh, that have been there and um, continue to support the community actually tremendously and uh, super grateful for that. But I think they are also realizing that they need to focus on the boutique production 
and education because obviously the big production wines and the grocery is always going to pay the bills. And um, at the same time, it's much sexier if you have people who can go to the sommeliers and get your wines on premise and uh, and really look at the restaurant side of things in a very different way. And so I'm seeing both of those guys actually starting to build teams of folks who are more educated and are working hard to help sell their wines in a different way. And I, I actually really respect and appreciate that. And then you move down into like the next couple of tiers and you've got sort of that that second tier as far as size is concerned. And that's where a lot of the big house importers that we get super dorky about, right? The Terry Theses and, you know, the Skernick portfolios of the world. And uh, that kind of exists in that second size. Uh, the, the Wasserman book, you know, is they're in favorite brands and Pioneer and those guys who, again, I think they now I see, and uh, again, with all respect to them, are struggling to keep up with the demand now. Because I think more and more people are excited about those wines and want them in the market. It's a huge investment to bring in pallets and pallets of dorky wines that sommeliers like, and that risk is much higher. You know, you can't just unload that on grocery. It's not going to disappear if people don't buy it. So those are higher risk games, but I think they're doing a nice job and we're starting to see more and more great wines. And then you've got the little guys that are starting up and really starting to, I think, pick up momentum in some cool ways. I mean, my friend Ian McCaffrey in Austin, I work with a lot, who opened a distribution company called Rootstock that, you know, now has a huge amount of the Kermit Lynch book, has Jose Pastor, like all these all these amazing wines that have never been in the Texas market. And, uh, and he's a one-man show, really. And, uh, and so there are the challenges that go along with that. But I think like those, the little guys like Vincent Henderson too in Austin and, you know, these guys who basically are one, two-man shows are starting to pick up serious momentum because everybody wants their wines. So um, that's exciting. And I think really the, the market is thriving, but also trying to keep up. So at one level, it sounds like the big companies are kind of depending on the sommeliers to be first look and to let them yeah. know like, hey, what's hip now? I mean, tell us, what do you want in? And they're kind yeah. of open to hearing that as opposed to being like, no, we're shutting you out. No, yeah. absolutely. I th I think that absolutely is the case. And uh, and then the challenge that I found is how does that translate up the ranks? Because with a big company, it's got to go through a hell of a lot more tiers of tape before the wine's going to show up in Texas. So it needs to be approved by a lot of folks. So even if I say I want this really dorky, expensive sherry or whatever, um, I might make that statement and they might say to me, yeah, we'll make that happen. And it may show up. But it'll be a year or more. Good thing you it's know. not vintage, huh? That's the yeah, yeah, the yeah, absolutely. Oh, thank goodness, right? <laughs> it's it's not changing. But at the same time, it it also sounds like it's best to go to those kind of situations with a group, no matter what size of absolutely. Because maybe you want it today, but in a week you're like, oh, I'm I'm over yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. No, so many are fickle, and I I totally respect and understand that. So. I think, um, you know, the Somme Association, to some extent, we're not quite there yet, but I would love to see it as the Somme Association and lobbying group, you know, <laughs> like really being able to say we are excited about this as a group. But I think we already in Texas have started to buy as a group. You know, frequently I'll just check in with uh, some of my colleagues and be like, hey, June, I can't take like a whole lot of this, but I want some. Can we split a case? Can we split a couple cases? Can we convince them to bring some in? You know, hey, James, can you use it? Can you put it on your list? You know, Craig, Devin, all these guys. But Mark. those people are in other cities. Yeah, absolutely. So you're actually talking to people in Dallas and Austin about group buying, right. not just in Houston. Right. So that, and, and to some extent in Houston as well, you know, I'll call Justin and be like, hey, can you split this case with me? But 
more often than not, I'll, you know, it'll be a supply or a email chain with a few names and a supplier that's working at a national level and say, Hey, can we, you mind doing this please? And because it's interesting to do it in multiple cities because that each gives you a differentiation right, in absolutely. your city. Like, oh, we're the only place you can find Pasco right. Pistaro or Kume River in absolutely Houston. But there's also someone in Austin. And the way that we can make that work is that we join forces together. Yeah, We can be distinct within our own venue, our own geographic area. But at the same time, we can make it happen by going as a group to bring in the quantity that is right. going to make sense for the distributor and guarantee that... They put a lot of money in it and they're a small distributor that it's going to sell through and they're not going to be stuck on it. Right. Absolutely. And it's about, I think, you know, obviously it all boils down to communication and also people honoring their commitments, which I think is something, again, we are as a group, wine buyers, not always so good at, but when you do it properly, then you can cultivate that relationship. So, you know, if you get some folks, like you said, it really has to do with, okay, these three folks, three different cities, we all honor our commitments. We're all going to do this, but we also are not bringing 10 cases into Houston. So everybody's pouring it at their place for a month. You keep some of that element of this is unique to us, but we're also honoring our commitment to the big guys and bringing in a little bit more quantity. So how should I understand Houston? Like when I think about it as a city, how's it laid mm -hmm. out and how do people dine there and where are the restaurants? I mean, it's a sprawl, right? Houston's a huge city geographically. And it was built without any zoning. So there's no real like clear city plan. And that's something that has resulted in a lot of neighborhoods. And, um, you know, the downtown is one of the weirdest areas in the country, I would argue, as a downtown area. And it's rapidly changing right now. And some folks are really there are some folks who are really doing a great job of revolutionizing downtown and really putting money and bars and interesting stuff down there. But I mean, as far as like a major metropolitan area it just doesn't it's not the same there's mostly business law offices things like that and then very little walking culture very little walking culture in houston in general because it's a thousand degrees and 100 percent humidity right now anyway and um but they're really trying to cultivate a walking culture downtown in a different way and put more restaurants in and bars but it's never existed there so the downtown area has always been mostly business and very little dining. I mean, a couple of very sort of established and cool steakhouses, but that's kind of it. So people um, used to leave to their suburb to dine, exactly, dine exactly. in their neighborhood. And now right. the idea is, oh, maybe we'll get people near their office. Right. Try and keep some of the clientele. And there's a huge number of folks living downtown now. There are a bunch of high rises. And I mean, Houston is growing so rapidly right now that, I mean, every time I turn around, there's a new apartment complex going in. But then uh, once you move out, Side that downtown area, you've got the Heights, which is much more, it's kind of like the, the Brooklyn of 20 years ago. It's a lot of smaller buildings, houses, neighborhoods, families, things like that. Uh, Montrose used to be kind of the, the most artsy area of Houston, and I think it still is to some extent, and tends to be kind of the epicenter of independent restaurants and bars and things like that. Our bar is there. It's also, if you look at sort of the outline of Houston on a map, the sort of 610 loop, the Montrose is essentially the center of that bullseye. Midtown is full of clubs and things like that, although people are trying to put in some more independent restaurants and bars, and I think it's changing, um, although it's a lot of <clears throat> right now. And then you've got the Galleria, which has always been a big tourist place, a lot of hotels there, and a lot of big malls and things like that. And so some really amazing establishments. Papa's Steakhouse has been there forever and is still, you know, if you want to go drink an amazing bottle of wine, I think it's pretty much the place in town you have to go if you want old Burgundy and things like that. But then you have a lot of chains and chain steakhouses and things like that, and it's fine. 
Is it difficult to source old wines in Texas or in Houston? All right. I will make my plea that distribution would do very well to solicit older wines and bring them to Texas because we're in a three-tier system. We can't buy at auction. I can't do consignment. I can't do... Essentially, I am at the mercy if I want to do it legally and without looking at a bunch of like weird gray market stuff or trying to convince somebody to bring it in under weird licenses, things like that. We are at the mercy of our distributors. And thankfully, some of them are starting to really pick that ball up and run with it a little bit. But older wine is really difficult to find. We're kind of looking at current vintage on almost everything. Now we're looking at a few more pre-sales, of course, sort of the the safest way to to bring in stuff you don't want to sit on. But I'd, I would love to see more old wine in there. Just because, especially at a place like Camarada, people are willing to spend money on a bottle of wine. That's not the problem. The challenge is that I don't, a current vintage of a lot of stuff that I want to pour, you know, 2010 Barolo is amazing and it is going to be spectacular in like 20 years. But uh, finding some stuff from the 80s and 90s would be better. <laughs> so when our market that's really dominated by access to current vintages and releases, does that somewhat push people to, hey, maybe a little less sulfur, maybe a little less oak, something that I can drink younger, maybe a little pet nap, maybe a little glue glue? Mm-hmm. I mean, is there that sense that like, oh, well, maybe if it's going to be cheaper and it's going to be drinkable earlier, maybe that works for me? To some extent, absolutely. And I think that falls into the same category of shifting away from the big extracted wine idea, convincing folks to drink wine that's more weather appropriate is always, I mean, it is honestly 100 degrees outside. And the idea of a 16% alcohol wine from fill in the blank is really horrifying to probably you and I, people still do it and still want it. But I, mean, I think granted, there's a lot of air conditioned dining rooms. It, everything is air conditioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're drinking it in 70 degrees. But um. Uh, But I think there's definitely starting to be a real shift. I mean, we pour a shit ton of rosé right now, and I think it's great. I mean, we pour more more rosé than I ever thought we would, and I I don't think I have a jaded perspective. I think I have a relatively realistic expectation as far as what our guests are going to drink, and I look around and see Sauvignon and rosé and all sorts of wines that are actually perfect in this weather, and then, you know, some Grolo and a lot of Gamay and, you know, I think the pet nats and uh, somewhat edgier, more challenging flavor profiles are being picked up absolutely and uh, consumed happily. I think it's all about that conversation and baby stepping people there. How has the consumer changed over the period of time that you've been in Houston? When you look around, what's as all these new independent restaurants have moved in there and said, like, hey, there seems to be some money here. seems to be a lot of young yeah. professionals living here. How has that changed what the consumer expectation is? Yeah, I mean, I think that we've had a huge influx of folks from other markets as well. So, I mean, and that has driven us to change our perspective largely. And and I think a lot of the independent restaurants are starting to say, how do I differentiate this list? Where I think five, 10 years ago, a lot of the wine lists in Houston looked pretty identical because if somebody was buying slightly off the beaten path wines, they only had so many to choose from. So they were choosing the same off the beaten path wines. And now we've got, I think, a much greater selection of wines or availability, but we also have clientele who are moving from D.C., San Francisco, New York, fill in the blank, that are already exposed to a lot of great wines. And so our clientele is shifting that way. I mean, when Forbes came out with Houston as the hottest city, um, figuratively, as well as literally, to uh, just because of economy and job availability and uh, and rest. and, And yeah, I mean, the arts and everything else are booming as well. 
then we have have had this influx of folks who have already built in expectations and now it's up to us to sort of rise to those so the clientele has changed just from the population shift to some extent a lot of times i've heard you say well we're not quite there yet you know as a wine culture but it's interesting to even be able to realize that because you know say if you talk to someone in the 80s in new york which now looking back, you'd be like, ah, you weren't quite there yet, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of wine culture. I don't think that they would actually have the realization that they weren't there sure. yet. You know, like it's it would be tough for them to like step out and be like, oh, yeah, well, there's this other example of what it could be. Yeah. But it feels like you guys do have those examples and are, are somewhat aware of what's happening in these other cities and feel like, ah, we're not quite hitting it yet, which is an interesting right. spot to be in. It is. And, and as you say that and I think about it, I wonder whether we want to be there entirely just because it it is a an awesome place to buy wine and be in the the wine buying culture right now simply because there is this great camaraderie there's a lot of collaboration and a lot of sort of everybody you know with the rising tide go all boats sort of philosophy and um and when i go into a restaurant and see a wine that i didn't even know was in the market i'm excited and happy and like I'm the opposite of being cranky that I didn't see it first. I'm only cranky if the distributor didn't let me know they were bringing it in. You know, say, hey, 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 just let me know. But I think there's an element still of excitement at discovering new things and new wines always coming to the market. And I don't know that we ever want to be in a place where we lose sight of that because the competition is so fierce. And so we're not there yet because we don't, because still I can buy things that they would be snatched up immediately by sommeliers in New York. And I can find them in the warehouse. But even when we opened Camerata, I found Clos Rougeard sitting in a warehouse and purchased 07 that had been there for a while that nobody knew existed. And then, and now I get allocated two bottles. So we're, I mean, it's growing, it's changing already. But I think I have a combination of wanting us to get there as far as availability, but not get there as far as competition and losing our sort of collegiate attitude. Sometimes when I've worked in markets that weren't like the epicenter market of the wine market, you know, uh, there was a tendency to say like, oh, New York, you know, but sometimes that would be like a delayed understanding of New York, you know, like, oh, I think New York's all about this. But then I move there and I'm like, oh, actually, it's a little different. You Mm -hmm. know, that was popular a while ago. Are you ever in situations where you're like, oh, I thought the game was raised by this, but I, I hear now that's not so, so hep. Well, we live in an era of Instagram and Twitter and everybody wants to post the bottles they're drinking right now. And so I think that there's an element of real time aspect of seeing what's being consumed and what's cool. But I also think we have this kind of retro culture going on as well in the sense that things that were cool are coming. It's all coming back around and the classics are cool again, which I think is really important. We can't lose sight of that necessarily. The, why has this winery been here for 500 years? Because the wines are awesome. That's why. And, um, or hopefully they're still awesome, right? And so I think actually, with respect to my personal feeling about that question, I'm going to take the egotistical route that I try to buy the wines that I like right now and that I think are cool to me. And I inflict those wines on my guests and hopefully they enjoy them. And I think we have to cultivate that sense of identity as far as what we think is cool as opposed to what all the Psalms in New York or San Francisco or Chicago or wherever or Paris for that matter think are cool. And I think it's important to get out of that perspective anyway. What are initiatives 
on the wine side that have worked for you in Houston? Like, what are things you've been like, hey, guys, got this special page or this special feature. We brought in a lot of these. What's been successful? Yeah, I mean, I kind of, uh, again, to sort of soothe my own personal version of ADD, need to pick new things to get excited about all the time. But when we opened about six months in, I had was really sick of the conversation about Cab being the wine for Houston. And I love Syrah, so I decided we were going to start the Syrahvolution, which we had shirts made up. We changed all of our by-the-glass heavier, actually not just heavier, uh, pretty much all of our by-the-glass reds for a few months were Syrah. And still, actually, the list is dominated on the heavier style of red by Syrah because I think it's a wonderful grape. And I think if you're determined to order by variety, we may as well throw another one into the mix that is delicious and has and is affordable still in many respects. And uh, so we started the Syrahvolution, which is ongoing. And uh, I still and I think it's actually picking up speed and I see things selling that never sold before. And I am running out of wines that I didn't think I ever would. This summer, we actually did a Loire Fest, did a week of pouring exclusively Loire Valley wines by the glass, 30 Loire Valley wines or 27, something like that, and got the other independent wine bars to jump on board. So there were five wine bars pouring at least three uh, wines by the glass from the Loire Valley, but we did sort of went full bore into it and had an amazing response, including sommeliers from restaurants all over town saying, hey, how do I get involved in this? And again, you know, you worry to some extent about it becoming, oh, well, this is going to be the next summer of Riesling or something. I think, you know, ideas like that are very, uh, it is easy to try and make what you're doing close to something that was wildly successful. What Paul Greco did there is unique and should not be duplicated, I don't think. But I think the spirit of getting people to try wines that they're not used to it, under the banner of something is great. And so the Loire Fest, I thought, was really actually very successful. And we sold Houston out of Loire Valley Wines for a week. That's been good. I did a big New World Focus, which I was super excited about because I think we, especially actually in the sommelier community, it becomes this like, oh, you know, I just it's, it's all European. And um, what's going on in Australia is unbelievable right now. Some crazy wines out of New Zealand. But then, you know, what's going on in South Africa? And I, and so we did a lot of New World Focus. And now I just have a few small producers that I think are getting overlooked. Moritz from uh, from Bergenland in Austria. Those wines are rad and everybody should drink them. And they are the, one of the easiest sell. Like that entry-level Blau Frankish is like you put, can put that in anyone's glass. So, uh, so we've had a blast kind of shifting up. I don't know what we're doing this fall. We'll see. You mentioned consumers determined to drink varietally. Is that something that's reality? I am on I am on such a soapbox about it because I think that Americans most particularly have this varietal affliction. And um, we just, we want to know what we're drinking. And I think that as a drinking culture, we're not there yet. And I don't know that we ever will be that like I can order Cabernet. Yeah, is it a 12.5% alcohol Cabernet from the Yarra Valley? Or is it a... 15.5% alcohol Cabernet from Paso. Like that variety does not determine how that wine tastes. And I think that it is dangerous to fall into that trap. And we have as a culture, we just have, you know. One Pinot Cabernet Noir. is uh, the same as another Cabernet. Right, exactly. I drink Pinot Noir because I watch Sideways and that's what I drink. And I think it is an affliction we need to start moving away from. And it, it is to some extent our job. And I'm not saying we should all pour crazy varieties because people should get totally jerked out of their comfort zone. But I think we should actually challenge people to think outside of a varietal perspective on wine. 
But at the same time, like it sounds like rosé is super popular. And in my own mind, I often think of rosé as the anti-varietal category. Yeah. Because people just absolutely. don't care what variety it is as long as it's pink, right? I mean, yeah, absolutely. I, I think rosé is a perfect tool for sort of destroying that that perspective. They don't look at the varieties on the on the label. They don't look at it if it exists anywhere. You know, a bottle of Provencal rosé is not going to list the varieties most of the time. And so I think that's great, but I think it also has created a view of rosé as a, the category. And, you know, beyond that, there's very little differentiation. Might be a little bit of a dangerous trap to fall into, but, um, but I think it's great to have the, I want a light red. If that is the conversation, then we're winning, right? So rosé may be helping us get there. It's interesting because a lot of the places you mentioned is kind of carving out a niche for the program where new world zones, whereas I think if I talk to a lot of New York sommeliers, they would be focusing on the old world. Mm -hmm. So does that give you a chance not only to get the bottles in that are maybe less snapped up in some of the metropolitan regions, but also act as a bridge to your own clientele who are used to some new world flavors? But if you can give them like cooler climate new world flavors, mm -hmm. that kind of is a is a way through for them as opposed to being like, okay, you were on apples. Now we're doing oranges. Right. You know, you can be like, well, I got a different kind of apple for you. Right. No, I, I mean, I think that to some extent they are great sort of gateway drugs in that respect. The list now, I'm not sure when we opened, it was about 75% old world because kind of where we get pretty dorky in the sommelier world for the most part right now. We're probably sliding closer to 65% because I've been finding fun wines that I get excited about. And I think language barriers and, and again, a lot of the wines are labeled varietally. So people feel a little bit more comfortable with new world labeling processes. That said, we still have, I mean, we have a page of 20 champagnes, which for a list that's a hundred wines long is pretty substantial. And why? Because champagne's great. And I think it's a category that's misunderstood and people should drink it. And, you know, I think we have a decent amount of Burgundy. We have, and I get dorked out about the Jura and I, I always laugh, you know, people, James Tidwell loves to make fun of me for having a Jura obsession. But the bottom line is every time I bring in some damn Trousseau, it is out the door within the week. So, you know, I'm happy to get dorked out about it, provided that financially it still makes sense. And it does. They're great. And I think the wines are great. Something else that would be a financial reality in a city like Houston that maybe wouldn't be in New York, where, as you mentioned, if you're really into a thing, you can kind of go really far into that thing and be part of that community, would be kind of the ability and the desire and the functionality of selling to a lot of different audiences, right? When you have a, a little bit of a smaller city, maybe you need to sell to businessmen, maybe you need to sell to the younger people, maybe you mm -hmm. need to sell to the industry does Camarata make that move? And is that, is that essential? No. And, and the funny thing is that I have tried to figure out our clientele since we opened, because you always kind of try and wrap your head around your own demographic. And to some extent, you know, sort of uh, the 9 p.m. on crowd tends to be young professionals who have the means to buy wine and that's and sometimes nicer wine and uh, and they want to also be challenged and that's a lot of our community right now of people who want their wine to be stimulating intellectually as well as just delicious. But on the early side, we have business folks finishing up meetings. We have bachelorette parties. We have, I mean, I never know what I'm going to walk into in the bar. And that's also exciting. And, you know, late night, we have a lot of industry, which makes, like I said, that's a, a huge, you know, something I'm very proud of. So we have a lot of, if I walk in on the later side, it's a lot of chefs and sommeliers and servers from around town and uh, our colleagues, which is cool. But I haven't wrapped my head around our demographics. So the list has to to some extent, cater to whoever walks in the door. That said, I think, 
education of your staff can really facilitate putting whatever you want on your list. If your staff can talk about Blau Frankish to a guest that is looking for sort of a medium bodied red and get them out of their head, you know, their, their own little comfort zone and then open a delicious bottle for them, you've kind of got them like they're going to come back and enjoy something else, hopefully, and trust you more. So we deal with our clientele, I think, through education. Feels like you've made some solid moves and you have a solid basis at this point. But what's it look like five years from now at Camerata or for David Keck or for both? I have no idea. Honestly, I mean, it, we all look at our careers in different perspectives. I think I, I very much like what we do. I'm very proud of the bar. We're looking at potentially maybe expanding. That's all sort of like baby steps because I think rapid expansion is the, the death of a good concept. But who knows? And I, I really enjoy the education work that I do. And I would love to sort of see how that progresses because hopefully, you know, people enjoy my teaching. But I also think that like it's something I very much enjoy doing and I think will help the Houston community the more educational outlets we have, even if it's just facilitating other people teaching. When you think about the Houston that you see and work in and then you think about how Houston is portrayed or talked about by other people from out of town, what do you think would surprise people to know about Houston that they don't already know? You know, I think Houston surprises people on all sort of, I think we're firing on all cylinders when folks show up and, you know, when writers and people come into the bar just to chat and sort of see what Houston's about, I find nine times out of 10, they're astonished by everything they've seen. I think the community is amazing in the restaurant and bar scene. And I think that is very unique for Houston that there's very little of the, I mean, there's always going to be people talking smack, but I think for the most part, everybody wants the community to do better both in wine and food and everything else. I think the arts are thriving. I think it's actually changing dramatically as far as just being in Houston is becoming a more beautiful place. They're rapidly changing the bayou. It's still hot. It's still Houston. I mean, that's not going to change anytime soon. But I think um, people are always sort of pleasantly surprised by the cultural choices, by the the restaurant scene, obviously. I think there's a lot of things that are changing. And I, I would argue that Despite our terrible marketing ideas in Houston, I think the perspective still from outside Houston is that we still wear cowboy boots and hats. And I'd like to think here in 2015 that's different, but it's really actually pretty much the same perspective. David Keck of Camarata in Houston, he'd like to think that Houston's a beautiful place and he's trying to make it so. Thank you very much for being here today. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much. David Keck of Camarata in Houston. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.